Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews, and I'm CMO at Chainalysis. Today, I'm speaking with two of my colleagues, Kimberly Grauer, Director of Research, and Salman Banai, Co-Head of Policy. In this episode, we dive deep into ransomware and Russian cyber criminals. Enjoy the show. Excited to have with me today on the podcast, two terrific guests, Kim Grauer, Head of Research at Chainalysis, and Salman Banai, Head of Policy for Chainalysis. Welcome to the show, Kim, Salman. Nice to have you here. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you again. You're welcome. Kim, maybe we can start with quick background. What does head of research at Chainalysis do? Well, what I do is I sit on top of all of our wonderful data and I ask the data more macro questions. So what is, how much crypto criminal activity is there in a given time period? What's changed over the years? Other macro questions people might be interested in is where are people using cryptocurrency in the world? And we put out these reports into the world to help inform people on just what types of how people are using cryptocurrency, how risky it is, and hope that this data is used to inform policy and inform people's decisions to get involved in cryptocurrency. So a lot of people know Chainalysis because of the crypto crime report or the crypto adoption index. You are the mastermind behind both those reports. Yeah, and also other reports, our NFT report, Lost Bitcoins was actually the very first piece of research we did that went viral of several years ago now. We estimated the amount of lost Bitcoins and all of a sudden it was kind of blowing up everywhere. Whales categorizing cryptocurrency users by how much money they're holding. And so if we have whales, can we see what type of whale? Maybe they're a criminal whale. Maybe they're an early adopter whale. And um, all these other kind of interesting questions have been fun over the years as well. So if you're a data nerd and you're into cryptocurrency, Kim has basically the best job you could imagine. It's a really, and, and the, the cool thing about it is there's genuinely never, we're never at a point where there's not hundreds of questions we could be tackling. We're never kind of, there's so many interesting research questions that, that you could always be doing. So we're never at wanting of, of new things to investigate. So it's awesome. That's outstanding. Salman, you're, you're a recent joiner to the Chainalysis team. Tell us what head of policy, what, what's that role all about? Yeah. So, um, the cryptocurrency policy discussions in, in Washington are heating up and uh, they have been uh, since before I joined, but I think I joined Chainalysis back in October and things have just accelerated since then. I like to take credit for the fact that House Financial Services has taken a turn toward being more constructive since I joined, but I think that's just a coincidence. <laughs> they heard you signed up and they said, you know what, this crypto thing might stick around. That's right. So um, yeah, we've seen, we've seen a noticeable change in the tone from lawmakers in Washington, I'd say in the last year, and then particularly accelerating in the last six months or so with a growing acceptance that digital asset technology is here to stay. Earlier this week, we saw the Biden administration put out an executive order directing a variety of agencies across the federal government to consider the role of digital asset technology uh, as a part of their overall statutory mandates which was a very, again, in, in the vein of constructive policymaking, an important milestone in kind of the, the, the mainstreamization of the currency markets. So all these developments are things we track and we try to uh, influence where we can. So there's a lot of education and encouragement on sound policy decisions there. 
coming from your part of the organization? Yeah. I mean, ultimately it's our job to educate policymakers, give them the tools that they need in terms of understanding uh, so that they can come up with the most well thought out and constructive approaches to regulating the space. That's an exciting place to be. And I think we're going to come back and talk about that executive order in a couple of minutes. But the the topic I wanted to kick us off on today is to talk a little bit about Russia. I think everyone in the world has been focused on the situation with Russia, the invasion and war uh, that they've started in Ukraine. I thought maybe we could actually take a step back from that to start. Kim, a big part of the the crypto crime report that your team just published covered this intersection of Russia, cybercrime, ransomware, malware, and cryptocurrency. Maybe you could start with just a quick overview of some of the findings uh, that came out of the report. Uh, for those that haven't had a chance to read it in detail yet, you know, maybe some of the big takeaways. And then I've got a couple of questions I'd love to dig in along with you in that. Uh, on that topic. Yeah, our crime report comes out once a year. And this year was really interesting because we actually were at all-time highs in terms of the total value received by criminal actors. And what is a criminal actor? I mean, there isn't just one type of crypto crime that is all-encompassing. There's different types of crypto crime. You have scamming, darknet market activity, you've got ransomware, malware, many different types of cryptocurrency criminal activity. And we were at an all-time high, $14 billion received by criminal actors this year. So you got to ask yourself, does that mean that we're failing as a compliance company? We're not stopping crime at all? And the answer is actually a little bit more nuanced because if you look at the share of overall activity that that represents, it's actually at an all-time low. So we're at an all-time low in terms of the percentage of overall activity that is associated with criminal wallets. And... In, in no small part, that's because we've just seen an explosion in the past few years in the legitimate activity through DeFi and other ways of people engaging in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. And just to give a little bit more, um, flesh out those numbers a little bit, the biggest type of criminal activity is scamming and always has been. And uh, the scammers tend to account for the most value received. But this year we saw an explosion in the amount of hacking happening specifically hacks of DeFi platforms. Ransomware is also a really big problem. Malware is something where we're crypto jacking is something we're kind of starting to view as where we are today with malware is where we were a few years ago with ransomware. So it's, a, it's something that is really important that we keep our eyes on. And then you've got terrorist financing, domestic extremism, which are maybe not huge amounts of money comparable to scamming, but still equally important. For somebody that's maybe not paying attention to ransomware, malware every day, is this exclusively a Russia problem? Like we've seen that linked in the news a lot. Or is that the only place that these types of uh, cyber criminals are, are operating from is out of Russia? Or, or is there more to it than that? There's definitely more to it than that. Although a majority of the ransomware, I think close to 75% of all ransomware funds received last year came from strains that we that had a Russia connection. So that that Russia connection, maybe it, it's connected to Evil Corp, which is a cybercrime group based in Russia uh, that's actually sanctioned. Maybe it's we know that the it's a Russian language strain, so it's only sold on forums where there's Russian language component or the, the affiliates, the people carrying out the attacks are known to be Russian. So a mo majority of the ransomware is happening within Russia, although we are seeing bits in Iran, for example, there was a 
surge this year in the number of Iranian kind of homegrown ransomware strains coming out of Iran, some of which were used for kind of geopolitical weapons and attacks against Israel. We've known North Korea has been involved in ransomware in, in the past as well. But we also do know that anyone can go and buy a, a ransomware attack on the dark web. So it's definitely not restricted to any one particular region, but it is predominantly identified to be in Russia at this point. So 75% of all the ransomware uh, stolen funds we were able to trace ended up in one way or another linked or indicators of linkages to Russia. What, what's that in dollar terms, just so people have a relative sense of scale? That's about $400 million the last time we updated it. $400 million in 2021, so over the 12. In 2021 alone. Yeah. That, I mean, that's an incredible amount of money. So there's obviously a specialization happening in Russia. Like there must be a secret underground university or something where people go to learn how to be ransomware uh, uh, cyber criminals or something like that. I think you definitely have the network effects popping up here of you're in a cyber crime group, you maybe bring more people in. So that that definitely is true. But mechanistically, how it exactly happens specifically in Russia is kind of, I think, probably a much more complicated answer. Yes. Some of the research that your team and other members of the Chainalysis team was able to do here with some of our, our government partners, it kind of uncovered that these ransomware groups have kind of fancy names like Evil Corp and R-Evil. They're not necessarily distinct and isolated organizations, right? There's a lot of overlap and I, I call it the promiscuity of the cyber criminals, right? They're all it in one way or another overlapping or working with each other, cross collaborating, right? We've seen a lot of overlap. And the cool thing about blockchain analytics is you can actually see this on the blockchain. So you can see an affiliate that you've identified receiving payments from different ransomware strains. And that allows you to confidently identify that these strains are, are at least used by the same affiliate. You can also see connections being made in the off-ramps that are being chosen to be used by these affiliates. And they're definitely not one person per strain and they're loyal in that way. They're moving between the strains very rapidly. And another finding of our report is that we saw that 2021 had the most number of active strains ever on record, around 175, 180 active strains, active in the sense that they're actively receiving funds across all of these different ransomware operators. That's incredible. And I think the thing that really surprised me about some of the actions taken last year is I imagine cyber criminals kind of in the movie setting, right? Dark room, lots of screens, multiple keyboards, kind of hacking away, magically breaking through firewalls. But a lot of these organizations are operating as what appear to be very legitimate businesses, right? Or in a couple of them, they actually have office space in this big high rise tower in the center of Moscow, right? Oh, yeah. They are very professional at times. They have uh, customer service. Apparently, some of them have great customer service. So in the portal, you can just say, hello, I would like to, you know, ask you a few questions about my ransomware payment. And then you can in interact with them. Apparently, some of them are very responsive. So the, the whole idea behind ransomware as service is the creation of a business model. And then that allows for a ransomware attack to scale efficiently. Because if you just have a few people doing everything, you know, you have a scaling problem. So you've seen that the, these businesses have become more and more professional, hiring more and more people with specialties. So maybe we hire this group to 
give us our access to victims. This person is going to negotiate the money laundering. And that allows everything to scale faster, people to get more money. It's kind of incredible. And I think the the logical question to that, when you have an organization that's not underground, but they look like a legitimate business, they operate like a legitimate business with customer service is, is Russia as a, as a nation state somehow complicit in this activity? Are they directing it behind the scenes? Do we have any evidence of that? Is that something that we can even really see on the blockchain? I think that it's definitely, we're at a point where if there's not active, the, the belief is if there's not kind of active state involvement, there's definite kind of looking the other way to some extent of this activity. I mean, we have identified, you, you mentioned before, so when you talked about services in Moscow City, we've identified dozens of businesses that are moving illicit money and oftentimes moving ransomware money. So these are businesses registered in Moscow City and specifically in one tower called Federation Tower East. And they are the money laundering group. They're the preferred money laundering organization for many of these ransomware strains. And they're just there operating and we've drawn attention to them and they're, they're still there. And so if there is an active nation state activity, there's definite seems to be at least kind of a looking the other way. Well, it's super interesting. And I think we'll come back in a moment to start talking about, you know, what can be done from outside of Russia about this. So if the Russian state is, is kind of ignoring them, then obviously other action from countries like the U.S. and the EU, they, they have to come into play. Last question on this topic of kind of the cyber crime side of the Russia issue, though. You know, are you seeing companies become more prepared to deal with this risk, either better able to defend themselves or respond when they're, when they're attacked? Like any, any recommendations that you would put out there from that perspective? I think the most important thing when it comes to, if you've been a victim of a ransomware attack is definitely reporting that the attack happened. We've seen there's a massive underreporting problem with ransomware where people will be attacked and maybe we've heard people don't want to, a business might not want to publicly disclose the attack happened because they're afraid of maybe their, their share price or some negative repercussion. But if you actually report the address, then I'd learn about these wallets that are controlled by the bad actors. And then we can actually have a better chance at even recouping funds and uh, identifying where, where the funds have gone. So definitely reporting the attacks are really important. And I think that especially following Colonial, this is ransomware is much more on people's radar than it, than it was before. And so I think just general awareness is, is another really important thing for the industry. Yeah. Getting law enforcement involved if you've been attacked, reporting it seems like increasingly the smart strategy. You mentioned Colonial. So that's the Colonial pipeline here in the United States. It suffered a ransomware attack last summer. Uh, we just published a blog kind of detailing some of the behind the scenes story that didn't come, come public at the time. Maybe for the audience, if they haven't seen the blog, we'll drop the link in the show notes. But Kim, could you describe sort of the sequence that played out there behind the scenes and the outcome for Colonial? Yeah, so Colonial was a major infrastructure attack that happened in the middle of last year. And what we know now is that it was carried out by an organization called DarkSide, which is a ransomware strain. Russia connections as well. And Chainalysis has actually participated in the investigation. And using the blockchain analysis, you can trace where the funds went after, you know, after they left the initial point of deposit. And from there, you're able to actually 
even in this case, you know, find out where the funds eventually went to. So this was a really positive outcome for the industry because a lot of times I think with ransomware, it can feel like your funds are gone and there's nothing you can do. And so seeing that there's actually been recourse or that there might be recourse for people to either get their funds back or to have there be arrests. We saw a few major arrests in the past few years. Our evil NetWalker is is actually a, a really positive story for the industry. And in, in the case of Colonial, I think because they engaged law enforcement early, they were able to recover at least some of the funds that were transmitted to to pay the ransom, right? They were able to to collect them as the attackers tried to move through, move them through an exchange that collaborated with law enforcement and and uh, seize the funds in transit, right? Yeah, that's right. Which is outstanding uh, outcome from a tough situation. So maybe we can shift gears and and talk a little bit about the topic that I think has been at least the top of my news feed uh, for the last two weeks, which has been the situation in Ukraine. So Salman, this this uh, is heading your direction here. I think the the immediate reaction to the invasion was uh, wide ranging, maybe not even of a scale seen before, economic sanctions against Russia. And immediately people started wondering, well, are the Russians going to, now that they're cut off from services like SWIFT and other kind of international financial uh, systems, switch to crypto in an effort to evade sanctions? What's the story there? What have we been able to see in the last couple of weeks since the sanctions packages have been deployed? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Ian. You know, as, as we perform kind of a, a risk assessment in terms of cryptocurrency markets being a potential outlet for Russian sanctions evasion, we have to first think about, well, who, who's been sanctioned so far? So it's it's been really the Russian state, the Russian central bank, a variety of banks and individuals that are closely tied to the Russian state or the Russian ruling class. And when we think about kind of those actors, you know, the Russian central bank, for example, has about $640 billion in uh, reserves. Some of those were actually not at the Russian central bank. They were in the correspondent banks in other jurisdictions, and they've been since um, immobilized. The Russian export revenues. So we recently now had sanctions extending to U.S. Uh, or I should say Russian uh, oil exports in the U.S. at least. And Russia generates about a billion dollars a day in petroleum and petroleum related products. The U.S. only gets, uh, I think, single digits percentage of, of our total imports come from Russia. So it doesn't affect us as much. About 8% is already what I think yeah. I saw and reported this week. So those are, those are kind of the, um, some metrics just to, to put the, the sanctions evasion or the, the, the impact, the potential impact in terms of, you know, the Russian sanctions. In contrast, the cryptocurrency markets have about 1.8, 1.7, um, trillion in, in market cap. So you compare that to a Russian economy of 1.5 trillion, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty sizable. You think about $1 billion a day flowing into, you know, the cryptocurrency markets, that's pretty substantial. We don't think the Russians are likely to use cryptocurrency as a primary mechanism to evade sanctions. The Russians through the years have developed, you know, pretty extensive capabilities, you know, through shell companies and, and the use of offshore banks to hide their financial assets. A lot of the ruling class in Russia have also invested in things like real estate, yachts, you know, other forms of personal property that tend to carry their value pretty well. English uh, so Premier League football teams. 
English premier, <laughs> premier league football teams among many, many other, uh, some of them are trophy assets. So we, we think that's probably the primary way that they'll blunt the impact of the sanctions is through, uh, is through these, uh, through traditional, you know, money laundering means. The second way, which has been increasing over time is by lessening their reliance on the payment systems, the financial systems that the U.S. and its allies, you know, have oversight over. And to give a specific example, the Russians have been shifting away from the U.S. dollar as a um, settlement currency for their petroleum and petroleum-related product exports uh, for a number of years. The data point I saw recently is, I think, around 47% um, last year or the year before of their exports, oil exports were denominated in the Chinese yuan. Yeah, that was a, a significant increase over time. So they've already kind of paved that road into the Chinese, for example, financial system. There was also an announcement made that um, UnionPay, which is a rough equivalent of our Visa and MasterCard credit card payment system, is moving into the, the Russian markets in a big way after Visa and MasterCard and American Express have pulled out from Russia, at least for international transactions. That's probably the second way the Russians are going to get away from blunting the impact of, of sanctions on their economy. A distant third, in my opinion, is, you know, cryptocurrency. You know, I think almost certainly at, at small value amounts, we can almost expect some amount of evasion, but it's going to really be minuscule, I think, um, in the long term you know, compared to traditional means and alternative currencies. That's a great summary. Union pay, I actually wasn't familiar with them. I just Googled union pay. So Chinese based alternative to MasterCard, Visa, American Express. So we're seeing potentially Chinese influence kind of fill the vacuum of the departure of European, North American based financial services. I read an article the other day that there's also a, a Chinese equivalent, and I'm, I'm forgetting the acronym, to the SWIFT uh, settlement bank transfer system that people are theorizing might come into play here for connecting the Russian banking system back out to the rest of the world. Is that, uh, is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, I think the medium to long-term impact is that Russia is going to provide some additional demand for this alternative payment system and that the Chinese are, are trying to stand up. You know, another thing you didn't mention, Ian, is the digital yuan which was launched um, officially during the, uh, the the Winter Olympics in China. And so the digital yuan is kind of in its early stages, but, you know, and we haven't heard anything specifically about the integration of the digital yuan into the into the Russian economy, but it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, there, there was a broader initiative around the adoption of the digital yuan to support particularly international commerce involving Russia and, and China. But it is a part of the Chinese long-term, you know, national security plan to increase the ubiquity or the use of the, the yuan as a currency for settling international transactions. And, you know, medium to long-term, we've, you know, um, U.S. and its allies have contributed to that somewhat, and it could be, you know, a, a longer-term consequence of the sanctions. Right. The sanctions are so effective that Russia is completely cut off from the American, EU, UK-dominated financial system that they move into the the Chinese system, which today is sort of fledgling, not widely adopted, and it, it gives it enough gravity to actually take hold. And then you see other countries start to operate across potentially both systems. You know, thinking about sanctions, so this is topic is obviously blown up in, in terms of public consciousness as a result of the war in Ukraine, but we saw more limited sanctions applied as it related to this topic of cybercrime in Russia, uh, where sort of targeted to individuals or organizations that were directly responsible for ransomware last summer. 
you know, given that we've got a little more time elapsed since those designations were made by the, the U.S. Treasury, what's the perception in policy circles about the effectiveness of that? And I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the SUEX and CHATX companies that were sort of trading desks, laundering firms for the Russian cyber criminals. Like, was that judged as a success in, in retrospect? Or are there lessons that we can take away from that and apply to the current? So the SUEX and CHATX exchanges were you know, facilitating money laundering and sanctions uh, evasion. There were two exchanges based in Russia that were sanctioned back in uh, September 21st of last year. And we saw immediately inbound transfers of cryptocurrency drop to zero and stay at zero after those sanctions were announced. In contrast, you could imagine, you know, uh, sanctioning a uh, Russian bank, you wouldn't have nearly as much of an impact. Like inbound transfers would still probably happen. They just would happen through other means. As a policy tool, sanctions are particularly effective in the cryptocurrency markets. And, and the reason for this is the transparency of the blockchain and when you when you add the overlay of transaction monitoring capabilities that can monitor in real time the flows of funds in and out of sanctioned wallet addresses the the effect is that when a, a wallet address exchange wallet address in this case is sanctioned all outbound transfers from that exchange are now flagged as high risk um, by any compliant institution or exchange or service downstream so those funds become you know tainted for lack of a better term not unlike the die packs that banks put on bundles of cash to deter bank robberies because if a bank robber steals it and takes it home tries to open the bundle the die pack marks the the cash is tainted and a similar thing happens when it comes to cryptocurrency this is this is a sanctions are particularly effective when it comes to cryptocurrency for exactly this this reason yeah the, uh, the sanctions uh, explodes the the virtual digital blue ink all over the the cryptocurrency and then it it's no longer useful and the the organization that's been sanctioned is uh is effectively cut off immediately yeah. And another thing is that those funds are, are, can be monitored in real time. Which is something that we don't have in any other part of the financial system, right? There's not, not nearly that level of transparency where anybody can, can potentially go look at, look at the record of transactions. So I, I would take from that, that we should all expect more designations of individuals and, and entities coming soon, and that we should expect an inclusion of more cryptocurrency wallet addresses, like the, the sentiment is at work. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't reveal confidences, but, um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw policymakers, you know, as they weigh kind of the costs and benefits of different actions to use sanction sanctioning of specific wallet addresses as a, as a tool to ensure the, uh, the efficacy of the, the sanctions. That's certainly what I think the opinion of the product team here at Chainalysis was. Maybe you can give us a quick summary of the, the new product that we introduced. Yeah, so we launched a new API for on-chain Oracle, which allows developers, particularly DeFi developers that have access to, for example, the front end of a DeFi application to incorporate the, these, these tools that provide sanction screenings. What we're offering is a free sanction screening tool that can be incorporated into the front end of a DeFi application to make sure that the users of that application can remain compliant with sanctions requirements. To me, that's outstanding, right? So, you know, obviously all of our customers who've been working with Chainalysis have had this capability for years, but I think, you know, there's so many people who are building in Web3 and cryptocurrency today 
a lot of them very early stage startups. Many don't have compliance teams. You hear about sanctions. I think we're all on board to, you know, turn back the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, you know, limit the access of the Russian economy to the, the global economy. But, you know, if I was a developer building a, a web three app today, I wouldn't have probably any idea how to get started with sanction screening. Like that sounds like something that would live in my product backlog for a while if it was competing with features. So, so this thing Chainalysis introduced, it's either an on-chain contract, uh, that I can, I can call from any other smart contract or an API endpoint my application can reach out to and I can validate any address. Is it on the sanctions list or not? Totally free. Anybody can use it. Yeah. I mean, we're, we at Chainalysis are doing our part to you know, support the sanctions policy and to ensure that our customers can remain compliant and avoid inadvertently facilitating sanctions evasion. Pretty excited that, you know, from our little perch here, uh, we can contribute to that overall policy objective. And it's a part of our overall goal as a company to increase confidence in blockchain markets by addressing some of the risks that can show up in these markets from time to time, because fundamentally we believe in digital asset technology, um, and, and its future. That's, uh, that's outstanding. I love, I love the altruistic move. Amazing. Well, we're, we're going to have to have you two back on the podcast. This is going to be a weekly affair for us on the public key. So as the situation develops, as we get more data, better insight, and the policy situation continues to develop, I'd love to have the both of you back and continue the conversation. Thank you for your time today. It was a ton of fun. Really enjoyed the chat. Thanks. Steve. Thank you. Great to be on. Thank you for joining me today on Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. If you enjoyed our discussion, please subscribe and post a review of the episode. And remember, sharing your public key is encouraged.